Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the relationship between mathematics and the physical world. My guest is Dr. Edward Close, who is the author of Transcendental Physics. He is the co-author with Dr. Vernon Neppe of Reality Begins with Consciousness. He has also recently authored a chapter in a new anthology titled Is Consciousness Primary? edited by Gary Schwartz and Marjorie Willicott. And the title of that chapter is A Mathematical Unification of Space-Time, Matter, Energy, and Consciousness. Welcome, Ed. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I know that there are many people who regard the realm of mathematics as being what I would call ontologically real. It's non-physical. It's Mm -hmm. not exactly mental, but it's real. They they would say that uh, pi exists independently of anybody ever having thought about it. Yeah, yeah, I think that view is held by a lot of, a lot of people that, mm-hmm. uh, mathematics, and one way that's kind of borne out is there have been a number of, uh, mathematical theorems in the past that when they were developed by mathematician, it was without any reference to physical reality whatsoever. It was a pure mathematical theorem. And maybe even after that mathematician has, is no longer alive, uh, somebody in the scientific world finds that it actually helps them to explain a phenomenon. I've even heard people express surprise at that. It's just amazing yeah. that this theoretical mathematical concept turns out to describe something or to help describe something that actually occurs in the real world. Uh, I, I think it was Eugene Wigner who, who said something to that effect, that it's uh-huh. amazing that the physical world seems to be in conformance with our mathematical models. Yeah. To me, it's not amazing at all. Uh-huh. It should be expected. Um, and just back to the two words, mathematics and physics, those, in kind of a segue from what we were talking about earlier, uh, the way people understand words is through the the filter of their consciousness, mm-hmm. of their understanding and their experience, and their learning, uh, and so forth. So I found that one of the <coughs> frustrating things about writing about things like TDVP, the the uh, uh, model that Dr. Vernon Neppe and I have have developed, is that. And even Vernon will admonish me, everyone, now, now, of course, if you say the word mathematics, uh, people go, oh, no, I don't know anything about that, and they immediately turn off and go away. A, a big percentage of people do that. They do, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, Stephen Hawking try, uh, alluded to that and tried to get past it, I think, in some of his books, like mm-hmm. Brief History of Time, uh, in that he felt that it was necessary to have a few few equations <laughs> in anything you write if you're writing about mathematics and physics. 
And physics, of course, the original Greek word really meant natural science. Um, what we're trying to do is expand the concept of natural from just simply materialism or materialistic view of physics to a broader scope. And uh, the relationship between the two, in my mind, uh, may be a little different than um, Max Tegmark, the, the um, Swedish phys uh, physicist, uh, comes closest to anybody I know that's, you know, a major figure in mainstream uh, mathematical physics today to the to looking at it the way I view it and that he's, he uh, says that you, the reality is mathematical mm -hmm. that, that mathematics is reality some people would call that the Pythagorean point of view yeah yeah because uh, uh, Pythagoras certainly saw, uh, a lot of uh, reality in, in the mathematics that, as it was being developed. In my view, uh, mathematics is actually a reflection <clears throat> of this, the logical structure of reality. And um, while reality goes beyond human logic, and uh, I believe, contrary to what some mathematical physicists believe, that uh, infinity is a reality. Mm. Now, there are mathematicians and physicists who will vehemently disagree with that and say that's a, a mental construct. There's no in reality. There's no such thing as infinite. It just seems that way because it's really big. Mm. That sort of thing, but I I don't uh, subscribe to that point of view. I think we're the reality is infinite, and that's one of the reasons we can never describe all of it with finite terms. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the limiting things about any language, and um, and mathematics is a language. I would argue that even the simplest mathematics is a reflection of some aspect of reality. So when you say reality is infinite, do you mean spatially infinite, that the physical universe has no end in space? Um, I, I look at it in what I consider broader terms in that the dimensionality that, that exists uh, three of space, three of time, and in our view, three of consciousness uh, exists within an, in, an infinite framework. It's just the finite uh, domains that are described or are drawn out of that infinity uh, by our um, the uh, functioning of our of our minds and by drawing distinctions. So. The closer we get to understanding more and more of reality, uh, the more mathematics becomes a reflection of reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting because when, uh, when Vernon and I started publishing uh, findings and things like that, and a, at least a basic sketch of our model, uh, many people reviewed it. I think it was sent out to over 200 people. Uh, across the world, and uh, 
it resulted in, in interfacing with some uh, people in mainstream science and particularly mathematics and physics. And uh, I remember one uh, prominent uh, physicist, mathematical physicist, saying, reading your stuff, it's like I'm reading something written by a magician. And then he went on to say, you seem to see something, some deep meaning behind every mathematical expression, and math just isn't that way. Uh, well, uh, my view is, yes, it is. It is that way. Uh, uh, you may not see it that way, and maybe not many people see it that way, but I do. In my opinion, and that's all I can call it until I can prove it to somebody else, uh, I think um, that mathematics is a reflection of the logical structure of reality. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, you have to bring in, and this is where I don't think in our discussions we've really, certainly not in this one, talked about a major influence on my thinking mm-hmm. of George Spencer Brown, mm-hmm. the author of uh, Laws of Form. Now, I remember back in the 1970s when that book was published. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, I'm pretty ignorant about it. I, I didn't follow it clearly, but I remember many people in the human potential movement, particularly, if I recall correctly, Dr. John Lilly, who was a very mm-hmm. prominent person then, they thought the world of uh, what G. Spencer Brown had accomplished. And it seemed as if uh, some of the brightest people of the human potential Field in the 1970s were studying the law of for- laws of form. Yeah, yeah, for good reason. Um, I would go further to say, as a mathematician, um, and I can claim that, even though when people say you're a mathematician, I say, no, that's something I do. Uh, I don't like to identify with a, a, a limited type of thinking, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, as a mathematician, I I believe he contributed some very important things. Possibly the most important was in in uh, altering the theory of types, which was put forth by uh, Russell and Whitehead in their big work, uh, and uh, that was to introduce the idea of. Uh, complex numbers, particularly of so-called imaginary numbers, mm-hmm. uh, into the algebra of logic, and it had not been done before. And he did that, and my study of laws of forms, and uh, to be honest, it took me about 10 years to get to the point where I felt that I really understood uh, most, if not all, of what he was saying and trying to say. Uh, a lot of mainstream mathematicians and physicists sort of rejected uh, uh, laws of form because of the fact that it suggested something outside, uh, really, of what they thought of as mathematics mm. and physics. And, of course, it was. He was, he was bringing... To me, they're, 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 I agree with his view that they should be part of the same thing, and that's logic and mathematics. Mathematics is symbolic logic. It's just a particular quantified form of it. Yeah. And he showed also 
And this had a big effect in what I've developed mathematically later, that there's not just one calculus. He talks about calculi and uh, or calculuses, whichever way you prefer, to uh, the fact that there are, there are multiples of these that can be identified, and the infinitesimal calculus of Newton and Leibniz is just one. It happens to be a very useful one at what I would call the intersection of two domains of uh, dimensionality, the domain of space and time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so it, it had a big effect on me, and I think it was, I think he will be recognized if he isn't already as, as contributing a very important uh, aspect, and that's that is incorporating the concept of of uh, imaginary and complex numbers into the algebra of logic. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we had an earlier conversation in which I, I recalled that uh, the famous phys- physicist Wolfgang Pauli had a, a series of dreams when he was in Jungian analysis with Marie-Louise von Franz, in which uh, the same idea came up in the dream world for him, that yeah. imaginary numbers uh, in, in relationship to real numbers formed a, a kind of a orthogonal uh, intersecting Yes, a relationship that could also define the relationship between mind and matter. Yes, and one of the things that I found when I was developing this and discussing it with other people, including Dr. Neppe, um, well, why do you talk about orthogonality? Why it could be, you know, uh, it doesn't doesn't have to be. It could be anything, couldn't it? Well, yes, it could, but if you're tying your logic, your system, your model to reality, look at reality and uh, look at the electromagnetic wave, the uh, the electrical impulse and the magnetic impulse uh, react at orthogonally, that is, at 90-degree angles, and the motion is orthogonal to both of them. Now, why would that be? It turns out that it's simple... Uh, parsimony. It's simple. Simply that that reality will follow the simplest path to uh, to develop what it's developing. And of course, this this when you even start thinking that way, a lot of physicists get very unha- un, mm-hmm. uneasy about it because you're you're approaching the idea of a uh, that reality is design, intelligent design is the term that they use, and they don't like that. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what you've been suggesting is, uh, and which has been borne out historically, is that many times mathematicians develop elaborate schemes, logical schemes, uh, having to do with the manipulation of numbers, uh, that and they don't give a thought to the physics of it. They're only right. interested in uh, the logical relationships. And then a physicist may come along decades later and say, "Oh my goodness, this mathematical scheme matches perfectly the experimental data that I'm trying to uh, work with." Right. Yeah. There's been a lot of that. Sometimes it's a little forced, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion, but it, it does happen. And, of course, in, in my work, the, the most important one is Fermat's last theorem. Mm-hmm. 
because most people consider that as an uh, as a pure math yeah. uh, number theory type thing, and yet. In my mind, because we live in a quantized and physical universe where everything occurs in in quanta, uh, it is perfect because it's uh, dealing with a Diophantine equation, which is always in integers, meaning that there's some basic unit and everything else is a multiple of that, which is what essentially quantification says. Well, now, for benefit of our viewers, uh, who probably all heard of Fermat's last theorem, but haven't a clue as to what it really says, uh, what does it say? Yeah. Uh, mathematically, it's, it's very simple. It's one of those nice things, and there's some of them still out there that haven't been proved. Uh, this is one of these nice things that you can state very simply from a mathematician's point of view, but turn out to be very difficult to prove or disprove. At one time, it was thought to be one of, um, of the, we talked earlier about uh, Gerdell's incompleteness theorem. It was thought that this was something that could not be proved within the context of the logical system of mathematics as we know it. Uh, that turned out not to be true, but it could have been. And um, so what Fermat's last theorem says is that it's really nice that you can always add two integers together and always get a third integer. Everybody can kind of can understand that mm-hmm. and agree with that. If you add one and seven, you get eight, which is also an integer. You don't add one and seven and get 14.2 or something like that. You get a, an integer. So that's, that's good. Then you go a step farther and think about adding squares which are usually associated with, with area, like x squared plus y squared equals z squared. And you find if you go 1 squared plus 2 squared, it does not equal 3 squared. In fact, you can't find anything that it does equal. However, if you work about it long enough, you find out, oh, there are some numbers like 3 and 4 that do give you an integer for the other third numbers. What you mean is an integer when you take the square root of the sum. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, the x, y, and z are all integers. So, for instance, the first simplest one is 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 5 squared. And if you work it out, you know, 3 squared is 9 and 4 squared is 16, and you add them together, get 25. Hey, that's 5 squared. Yeah. So we're back to Pythagoras. Yes, and that was a, a, an integral part of the Pythagorean theorem. And for those who haven't studied um, electronics, let's say, and electricity, uh, may not realize how important that simple Pythagorean theorem is to every bit of engineering and science. It's basic. It's as basic as learning how to add and subtract to know the, the basis of the Pythagorean theorem. So it's a very important one. If you go one step farther to the third power, so now we're talking about x cubed plus y cubed equals z cubed, the question is that Fermat asks, can x, y, and z all be integers? And the answer was no. Mm -hmm. Uh, Simply stated, in the way he did, he said, while we can find uh, combinations of squares that will equal 
to a square, we cannot find any at any higher power of cubed or fourth or fifth or sixth or nth power. There are no solutions where x, y, and z mm-hmm. will all be integers. That's the theorem. Which is quite amazing because if yeah. you were to try and establish that empirically, you would have zillions of combinations you'd have to go through. You'd have an infinite number, yeah, yeah. and you still, even when you got to 10 million and 1, there's always 10 million and 2. Mm-hmm. So you haven't proved it. So That's one of the interesting things about math. If you're proving something for all of something, you're essentially improving it. Uh, you're proving it for an infinite number of cases. And and my understanding is that uh, Fermat developed this uh, theorem hundreds of years ago. Yes. And wrote it down, scribbled it in the margins of a book or something to that yeah. effect, without ever establishing the proof. And subsequently, people have have found they have never been able to find an exception to the theory, but no proof either. Yeah, that went on for about 300 years. Um, but, yeah, what he, he actually wrote that down in his copy of uh, a little book called by Diophantus, mm. a Greek mathematician, and uh, it was about what are called Diophantine equations after Diophantus. And uh, the book on Diophantine equations is the margin of that is where he wrote. And he said, I have found a marvelous proof of this, but this margin is too small to contain it. Mm. So he said he had a proof, but he didn't have room to write it down there. So he uh, supposedly wrote it down somewhere else, but nowhere ever found that proof, It, uh, which I can understand. I, mm-hmm. I uh I developed a random number generator, and I'm sorry, a prime number generator one time, which is would be phenomenal, would get your name in mathematical history, because nobody's been able to come up with a formula that from which you can drive all derive all prime numbers. Mm. It seems to be uh, so random that there is no pattern that you can discover, discover and write. Mm. Well, I had uh, developed one that that produced all prime numbers and nothing else up to uh, over a thousand, uh, well, over a thousand prime numbers, so okay. that's a, a lot for a, a lot. Up. Yeah, um, and it got lost in a move somewhere, and I've never re-created it. But I was doing it in connection with Fermat's last theorem when I did it because uh, you can show very easily uh, mathematically that that all you need to think about for the n, you know, I say x to the n plus y to the n equals z to the n, that you can only, you can focus on where the cases where n is a prime number. Mm-hmm. So if you had a formula for prime number, that would be a step toward uh, developing a, a simple proof. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason that Diophantine equations are uh, so important has to do as I understand it, with the fact that, uh, and it is a fact, uh, in certainly in quantum physics, that reality is quantized. That yes. at some point uh, you get down to the most fundamental unit there can be, which uh, I've heard people describe as the quantum of action. Yes. 
That yes. is that. That's the bottom line in physics these days. Yes, and that was developed by Max Planck himself. The mm-hmm. quantum of action, uh, symbolized by H, and in most calculations they call it H bar, which mm-hmm. is H over over two pi. I so this would be an example of where physics and mathematics diverge, because mm-hmm. uh, according to Planck. Nothing physical takes place uh, at, at a level smaller than uh, right. than the quantum, uh, but in mathematics, you can go down uh, as small as you like. You can go down uh, infinitely or infinitesimally below the uh, quantum in mathematics, but not in physics. Well, actually, in Diophantine equations, you can't. A Diophantine yeah. co- equation, the bottom is the integer. Which, which would be consistent with the with quantum, quantum theory. Physics. You and need to have a, a, a fundamental unit, a single unit, yeah. an indivisible unit. Yeah, and this was the inspiration that I had while working on a proof to Fermat's last theorem, that this has to have a link to quantum physics because of that fact. Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, I, well, I'll say I intuited at that point that that Fermat's last theorem was going to be a a, a pivotal thing in in uh, developing a quantum calculus. Uh, so it was very Im- important to me that I that 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 was a, a goal of mine. I had two goals that probably started in the 1960s while I was teaching mathematics. In my mind, my goals as a mathematician. Uh, was to, number one, uh, develop a quantum or a diophantine uh, calculus, and two, one of the, 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 the draws of that is nobody has developed a general formula for solving diophantine equations. And uh, two was to put consciousness into the equations mm-hmm. of mathematics and physics. And I saw at an early point in my career that that should be possible because of this relationship of Diophantine mathematics to quantum quantized physics. So the bottom, the the most uh, fundamental element should be um, tied to the smallest possible. And now this brings up a, a method that uh, that uh, Pierre de Fermat uh, actually used, and they say invented. <coughs> I don't think you invent mathematics; you discover mathematics. You might invent notation and uh, symbols, but you discover mathematics. It's there to be discovered because it is, in my opinion, the uh, logic and uh, structure, the logical structure of the universe. So, uh, one of the things that he developed and gets great credit for it with, with good cause is the method of infinite descent. And the method of infinite descent is where you take one instance of a mathematical expression and show that if you assume that it's correct, if you can show mathematically that you can start with that and uh, and uh, find a way to to uh, develop it into a 
another expression that is smaller, then if you've done that once, you can do it again and again and again. So that's the idea of infinite descent. But in Diophantine equations, as in a quantum reality, there's a bottom to it. So in a, in a, the beauty of the elegance of a, a proof by infinite descent is that you get this, this process going, and by doing it, you get down to some lowest number, like one of your variables turn, it gets all the way down to one, can't be any smaller in a, in a Diophantine world. And then if you look at that expression, which will, will be simpler because the numbers in it will be small, starting with the number one, and it's not true, it proves that the one you started with was untrue. Mm. So this is the proof of a negative mm. by infinite descent. Uh, I hear people in the, in the non-mathematics world say, well, you can't prove a negative. That's entirely untrue. You can prove a negative. It's difficult many times. It's much more easy to prove a positive uh, hypothesis, but mathematically you can prove a negative. Uh, so I kind of cringe when I, I want to correct them when I hear somebody say, well, you can't, of course you can't prove a negative. Uh, well, in the field of parapsychology, my field, that's one of the arguments that the skeptics raise. They yes. say parapsychology is not a real science because it's based on the idea that uh, you're trying to prove that psi doesn't exist and, and you can't prove a negative. Yeah. Does, yeah. does this uh, dissent uh, apply here? It does. It does. <clears throat> the minute they've said that you can't prove a negative, they're wrong. Because mm -hmm. uh, I can give examples of, well, Thermosa's theorem is a very yeah. good one. Uh, I, in my opinion, again, uh, in my mind, I proved Thermosa's theorem in 1965. Uh, it was accepted, not my proof, but a proof was accepted in the, the mathematics community from uh, uh, Andrew Wiles in '94, um, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. and, Long after you developed your proof. Yeah. And uh, I spent, uh, at that time, my, my reaction to that was well, even though I had mine out there and I had had it uh, by that time reviewed by uh, or at least sent for a review to uh, at least about 50 math professional mathematicians and uh, for reasons that are too numerous to mention almost, a lot of them didn't even look at it uh, because they didn't believe it could be real because it was only three or four pages long. Mm -hmm. Andrew Wilds's proof was originally, I think, 300 and some pages long. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, so I spent some time, after, after I got over, my first reaction was, oh well, I might as well forget about it because mm -hmm. it's been proved. And that, uh, before that time, like I said, a lot of people, it was, should have been called a conjecture. Yeah. Until something in mathematics, until something, and really in mathematical physics, until something has been proved, Definitively and without question, and everybody agrees that there's a proof, it is true. Any time before that, it's called a conjecture. Or in, in science, it's called a hypothesis. 
So uh, Fermat's last theorem, why it was called that by everybody, was really Fermat's last conjecture uh, as far as the, sci- as the math community is up until 1994. Even, even mathematics and physics are all based on some a priori assumptions at some point mm-hmm. that are not provable within the system that's developed. Right, from, which by, gets us back to Gödel's incompleteness yes, theorem. Yes, yes. And uh, so, yes, but um, people tend to think that these things are absolute. And if you look at the history of science, you have to question that because uh, truth keeps changing in science. Yeah. Uh, I can remember when the universe was very much smaller than it is now. <laughs> yeah, very and much And that's not so. because it's expanding. It's because they were estimating the size of the visible universe, and it kept every few years it would double its size uh, by their measurements, not by the simple expansion. I, at one time, we didn't understand about galaxies, really. We thought that the, the, the whole universe was the Milky Way, in effect. Yes, the infinite descent uh, method uh, is one of the ways that I've attempted to prove to uh, skeptics that my 1965 uh, proof of Fermat's theorem is valid, because I can I can use infinite descent to prove the uh, how many. Uh, and the um, the theorem of, of algebra, the primary theorem of algebra, that talks about how many roots you can have, how many solutions you can have to an equation. Mm-hmm. And I use infinite descent in that context to show that, uh, in fact, the, the proof has to be valid. But um, it's very difficult to get anybody uh, who's a professional mathematician uh, to look at a a proof, a simple proof of, of Fermat's last theorem mm-hmm. because they have embedded in their mind that that's impossible. And the reason is that every major mathematician from the time of Fermat, which I believe was 1537 when he wrote that little scribble in the Diophantine book, uh, Gauss and Euler and just name a famous mathematician, and you can be sure that he tried to prove it. Gauss's whole method of modular algebra—I don't know if, if you've ever if you've heard of that—but it was developed in an attempt in him one of his attempts to mm-hmm. prove not just to prove Fermat's last theorem, but to prove that to develop a method to uh, to solve Diophantine equations. He developed something called modular algebra, and uh, uh, Wiles actually combined that with the theory of elliptical functions, which this this brings up a topic that's uh, one that's important, I think, and as I try to stress, is that specialization has been a cause that we don't have broader theories and theories that encompass more because even within number theory you can go to universities and find number theorists who are are uh, well known and their their work is well accepted by the mathematical community 
even though they both call themselves number theorists, they can't really communicate about their own theorems and things because they have specialized so much. Mm -hmm. And so elliptical functions was a specialty. There were a whole cadre of mathematicians that did nothing but study elliptical functions and a whole cadre that did nothing but study modular algebra. Well, what he did was bring those two together and show that that uh, proofs in each one of them, when combined, actually would prove Fermat's last theorem. It, it, and he won a prize, as I recall. Yes, yes. There was the uh, prize that was in Germany that was set up before World War II, so I thought it went away. But uh, apparently, it was a monetary prize that yeah. you uh, had a rightful claim to. In, in my <laughs> opinion, and maybe a handful of other people. Uh, but I suppose it's fair to say Fermat's own proof, which he wrote in the margin that he had, but yeah. didn't have room to write down, couldn't have involved elliptical functions. No. And that's an argument where people will say, well, it's most likely that Fermat was mistaken. And if you've ever worked on mathematical proofs, you can see how that would be possible. It's very easy to fool yourself into thinking you've got a proof when actually you don't. Mm -hmm. It's not hard, that hard to do. And even a, a great mathematician could do that and do. And many times math moves by mistakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, by uh, developing a proof, and it, it turns out not to be, then by correcting the error you made, maybe you do come up with a proof, or you come up with an entire new theorem. Mm -hmm. So, um, by um, paradoxes, even in science, uh, paradox is a wonderful thing because it gives you a chance to find something new because the only way you can escape the paradox is go back and look at your a priori assumptions. So at the end of the day, it mm -hmm. seems to me what you're saying, Ed, is is that mathematics is fundamentally sociological, that in order to convince yourself that you're not deceived about your own proof, you need the confirmation of other people in the mathematical community. That's absolutely true. Uh, even if I even if I can get individual peoples who say, yeah, I agree, I see it, it is a proof, that's not sufficient. Uh, uh, it's not recognized as a proof until the general community. Same thing was true with Wilde's proof. Mm. In fact, uh, many people couldn't follow it, and uh, somebody actually found an error in it the first time he, he uh, published it. Uh, but he and another man, Ribbit, I think was his name, mm -hmm. went back and found how to how to uh, rectify the error they had made, and then everybody said, "Oh, okay, it's a proof." Well, you know, this suggests to me that reality is very malleable. Mm -hmm. You have mathematicians, Platonists, who will say reality is fundamentally mathematical. You have physicists who will say, no, reality is physical. Yeah. You have psychologists who might say reality is psychological. Spiritual mm -hmm. people who will say reality rests in, in the divine. And sociologists will tell you reality is fundamentally determined by social institutions. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they're uh, all right. That's yeah, they're all that's that's exactly right. Uh, and uh, that it really takes me back to my uh, friend uh, George Spencer Brown, mm -hmm. because uh, he basically said that any universe is malleable. 
But, he said, the forms that arise, he said that the moment that you, um, what's the word, cleave a space, in other words, make a distinction between this part and that part, you create a whole universe springs into existence. And he said, any of these universes are malleable. However, the forms that arise in them are the same. And this supports my idea that there is a mathematical reality behind all physical reality, mental reality, and spiritual reality. Well, Dr. Edward Close, once again, a (laughs) fascinating discussion. I have a feeling that this is one of those conversations that uh, if if we were alive 10,000 years from now, we could still continue. Yes. It's a a never-ending story. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with me. Thank you for the wonderful questions and comments. And thank you for being with us. 